Broadway for Sunday, February 4th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jenna Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, and Matt Tamanini. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared online at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and NewYorkTheaterGuide.com. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, and you? Not too bad for a cold Sunday. <laughs> also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Matt Temanini. Matt is Broadway World Senior TV and Film Critic and the host of Some Like a Pop Podcast, which is available on iTunes Stitcher. And you can connect with Matt on Twitter at BWWMatt. Matt also does that today on Broadway Podcast. Um, yes. Friday on the Broadway Radio uh, Network. Good morning, Matt. Don't remind me. Good morning. Yeah, I really need to get you an updated bio because it's been probably a year since I've been on this show, I think. Oh, maybe yeah. last maybe last Academy Awards. Mm. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, sure. Send it send it my way. You know, uh, you have my email address, right? Oh, don't remind me. <laughs> all the all the emails you've been sending me over the past few days about the giant gold baby. Um, the giant I, gold I, baby is awesome. Do you guys know about the giant is. gold baby? Who got it? Who won the giant gold baby? Oh, you Stevie don't know? Colbert. No. No. Yes. Really? <laughs> Michael, oh. do you know what we're talking about? You're talking about the play, the uh, mankind. The, yes, you're talking about the the prop. Yeah, the prop. Uh-huh. Yeah. So mankind uh, just closed off Broadway and had a how heavy was it? Three hundred twenty-five pounds or yeah, three hundred twenty-five. <laughs> yeah, three hundred twenty-five pound, ten foot gold baby statue that they were getting rid of on Craigslist. And, uh, oh my God! It looks like Stephen Colbert took it, and it's going to be appearing on a show sometime soon. Uh, Giant Gold Baby. What would possibly Stephen Colbert use that for? He'll have Laura Benanti sing a song <laughs> to it we in a Slovenian accent. I don't know. I mean, it's it's pretty creepy just for being such a giant gold baby. But in addition for that, doesn't it have blood coming out of its mouth? What? Hmm. Oh, I didn't see I mankind. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the, the baby dies, and oh, uh, spoiler alert! Well, jeez, right, it's closed. It's closed. It's closed. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers for all the community theater and regional productions. Thanks, thanks. But Corky Sinclair oh. was going to do it. <laughs> next year, next year we're going to do mankind. <laughs> That was that was very good. Thank you. Creep, creepily good. That was <laughs> excellent. Yes. Oh boy. So um, anyway, let's move directly into our um, review section. So Jenna and I got a chance to see Cardinal at Second Stage, uh, where um, I guess Jenna. Why don't I just let you start off with this? Oh, are you putting all the pressure on me? Sheesh. So, okay. Uh, Cardinal. Yes. Uh, I'm. Are you sure what Cardinal was supposed to be? Because I couldn't tell. If it's a black comedy, I didn't laugh a lot. If it's a drama, it's not <laughs> particularly emotional. 
Um, I'm not really sure what exactly it's supposed to be. Uh, the story could really be compelling, and it raises some very interesting issues, but uh, Craig Pierce, who wrote the script, the script is just so thin that it never makes a, any real impression. Uh, the story follows this young woman uh, returning to her upstate New York hometown. She pitches this idea to the mayor, who used to date her sister back in the day. She wants to paint the downtown area cardinal red, hence the title. No, it does not refer to uh, birds or uh, priests or anything like that. It just refers to the color. So the town used to be the strong blue-collar community, but its factory has closed down, and now the entire area is really struggling, which sounds very true, very realistic. So Lydia, our heroine, she believes her idea will attract tourists and revitalize the town with visitor dollars. Spoiler alert, by by scene three, she gets her way, and then the rest of the play examines the fallout as locals adjust to becoming tourist attractions. And at the same time, a Chinese tour company from Manhattan capitalizes on her idea by bringing in Chinese tourists up from New York City. So um, Pierce also wrote a Slow Girl, which ran at Lincoln Center a few years back, and the book and lyrics for Kid Victory, the musical at the Vineyard about a year ago. And those shows similarly dealt with protagonists or a protagonist who was kind of hard to sympathize with, not a flawless, perfect, Mary Sue-ish kind of uh, hero or heroine. Um, But those characters revealed complex layers as the story went on. There isn't a lot of complexity in Cardinal, and there aren't a lot of layers to reveal anything that's very interesting. So uh, is the play suggesting that small towns need rescuers from big cities? Is the play suggesting ambitious women are dangerous and destructive? Is the play suggesting bringing Asians into small town will destroy the character of these communities, which is arguably the most offensive angle the play seems to take? But whether that thinly veiled racism or sexism is worse, we can debate that after <laughs> afterwards. Uh, the script is just very muddled, and it really should have had another few drafts before production at this level of a theater. Kate uh, Kate Wariski's direction, it, she doesn't add a lot of depth to the story, although I will say she does keep the energy up as much as possible. She keeps the pace moving, so that's certainly one vote in its favor. Uh, the cast does their best with what they're given to work with. Uh, Anna Klumsky, she's done some really good comic work on stage and on TV. She's got the Emmy nominations to prove her comic chops. She doesn't have that much to do with this role. She veers between almost uh, cartoonish villainy and then childlike exuberance from scene to scene, which could work if this were a thriller where we're never supposed to know a character's motivations. But in a, a black comedy or a drama or whatever this is, we should start to get some sense of why a character is doing what she's doing. I really don't think this is Klumsky's fault so much as Pierce's and maybe uh, Wariski's. She just hasn't been given strong enough material to work with or a strong enough direction. Uh, Playing the town's mayor, Adam Pally, gets some better material to work with, and he actually does have some really strong moments of emotional power. And then it all gets ripped to shreds when he starts jumping up and down like a toddler throwing a tantrum. Uh, I think that moment was supposed to be funny, but it wound up just being more creepy than anything, and it really weakened what could have been a complex, interesting character. The best performance of the evening comes from Becky Ann Baker who plays a local businesswoman who sees her community changing and just doesn't know how to adapt with it. The role could easily have been dismissed as a caricature of small-town Americana, 
but she really gives it some depth and emotional resonance. Alex Hurt plays her developmentally disabled son, and he gets some good moments as well. And I think with stronger direction and writing, his performance could have been a lot more powerful. Uh, Stephen Park and Eugene Young round out the cast as a father and son business team from Chinatown in Manhattan. And neither one really gets much to do beyond being a plot point. Uh, Derek McLean's set, it's fine, it's effective, it's industrial bricks with red lights on them, courtesy of Amit Chandrashekar, to convey the literal changing colors of the town, and it's a nice, sort. it's a more subtle effect than pretty much anything else in this play, which is about as subtle as a lead pipe to the temple. Um, the play could have been a lot more interesting and in-depth. It could have been on the level of Slow Girl or Kid Victory, but it needed some more drafts. It needs some more rewriting. I really hope Pierce will go back to the script and maybe fine-tune it a bit more. It could be compelling, but it needs some more work. I totally agree with you, Jenna. Uh, I had mentioned this on Today on Broadway that uh, Cardinal needed a dramaturg, needed needed some more rewrites it had such great potential yeah and this uh and, and writing about seemingly more uh, in anecdotally in my experience this uh this changing of industrial towns into service towns and how they're pulling themselves out of this uh we saw it last season in sweat uh mm, yes and that that type of same setup but I felt like Cardinal tried to do too many things. There were so many storylines that were, and each one of them uh, could have been solid, you know, whether or not the town is going to open up a hospital to make it its main center of right. attraction there. That's yes. a really good storyline. And this romantic relationship between the mayor and this, and this woman, and then this triangle about, this whole weird scenario about her watching the mayor and her sister when she was younger. And I was like, there was like, and then the, the Chinese entrepreneurs and then the relationship with the son and the setting up of alliances. And I was like, there's like five or six good plays in here Mm -hmm. and you you put them all into one thing and it was terrible. And And that was a shame. It really is. And any one of those stories could have been fascinating had it, had it gone in depth and really given each of those storylines the time and attention they deserved, it could have been fascinating. And instead, it's just, it's not. And this story with Becky Ann Baker taking care of her son in the changing town and how they lose the bakery business. And I, I mean, there's a lot of really good things happening here, but in one play, this, uh, this was. It, not ready to be put on no. second stage as stage. No, so. this is a this should have been a workshop at this level, and then it should have been fine tuned further. And I have, you know, great people on the title page. Yes. You know, uh, on paper, this looks to be a really interesting thing to look forward to, and unfortunately, it didn't all come together. But I hope that they do rework it and and focus it. And absolutely, uh, and it'll be a much better opportunity for others. All right. Next up in the review section, Michael, you got a chance to see fire and air, the Terrence McNally show. So tell us about that. 
Well, many of the comments you two just made about Cardinal, I, I think many of them could apply to this play. Uh, it could have been in extremely compelling uh, if it had been better written and also in this case, I would say better directed and better acted. Um, this is a play by Terence McNally, Fire and, and Air, directed by John Doyle, directed and designed by John Doyle, and it's a classic stage company production um, down at their theater. And it's primarily about the relationship between the Russian uh, impresario Sergei Diaghilev, played by Douglas Hodge, and the legendary, now legendary, ballet dancer Václav Nijinsky, played by James Kuzadi Moyer. Uh, there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of information contained in the program uh, and the press notes about uh, the, their whole relationship. It's, it's, uh, Diaghilev created uh, and was the main engine behind the famous Ballet Russe uh, in Paris. And, uh, Lijinsky was his primary muse, and also it is it, made clear in this play that Diaghilev was sexually obsessed with him, and they had some kind of a relationship on that level. Um, this, uh, however, is a, a play that is does not land anywhere near as strongly as it could because it's just not well written. There's so much exposition. There's a lot of um, historical nuggets dropped in a way that make them sound very clunky. Um, and here's another thing. Um, there is no dancing in it, even though it's about uh, – actually two uh, of the most famous dancers uh, in the world because another character is Leonid Messine, played by J. Armstrong Johnson. Uh, now, um, you know, I, I mean, of course, they were limited in terms of budget and sets and stage space, but I, I think this is a case where the play should not have been done if it could not have had some dancing to indicate to us uh, – what what kind of art we're talking about. And they spend so much time talking about dance, but then no one ever does it other than um, the, the cast doing some exercises at a ballet bar. Um, and at one point, uh, J. Armstrong Johnson uh, goes through a few of the positions. But again, no dancing. We hear some music of some of the famous works that uh, were first presented by the Ballet Russe, including pre the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn and the rite of spring, but, but no dancing to it. Uh, so I think that is an inherent flaw and maybe it should not have been done or written or produced if they couldn't figure out some way to include some of that. Now, of course, you couldn't you know, create, recreate the original works. I'm not even sure if they exist uh, because they're so old and I, I don't know if any film record of them exists. But uh, regardless, I, I think that that would have helped a lot here. Um, the uh, Douglas Hodge as Diaghilev gives an extremely odd, frustrating performance. He is British, but he uh, does the character of Diaghilev in a very odd, what I would say is Midwestern accent. Um, no. Yeah. And, and it just, <laughs> it just um, completely destroyed 
uh, any sense of uh, European sophistication. I think if he had used his own accent, it would have been preferable, even though, uh, you know, Diaghilev was Russian, not British, but it, at least it would have been the same, you know, <laughs> continent. continent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Continents. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, the other uh, roles in the play are uh, Diaghilev's cousin, uh, Dmitry Filosofov is played by John Glover, and I thought he would have been uh, a better choice for Diaghilev, at least as the way they, the performances come across in this show. He, he just seemed to have more of that uh, sophistication and it just seemed, seemed more continental somehow. Um, then we also have Marin Maisie, who is so, so wonderful to see back on stage, as Mizia Sert, who is a, a patroness of the arts and a friend of Diaghilev, and Marcia Mason. As uh, Diaghilev's nursemaid uh, from childhood, whom he whom he keeps as, as he keeps in his employer for his whole life. So, uh, as you, as you guys said about Cardinal, you know they have some really amazing names involved here: uh, John Doyle, Terence McNally, Marin Maisie, Marcia Mason, John Glover, uh, Douglas Hodge, and uh, J. Armstrong Johnson who's really uh, an up-and-comer lately, and James Cusati Moyer, who <laughs> got noticed uh, certainly in the short-lived re revival of Six Degrees of Separation because he played the naked hustler in that one scene. Um, there was material in the, uh, in the press materials for Fire and Air that said something to the effect of warning nudity, but I wouldn't even say that there was any full frontal nudity, so... Um, I'm not sure if that's something they stepped back from uh, because people are becoming much more sensitive to that lately uh, for obvious reasons. But um, anyway, just so you know, you're not really going to see any full frontal nudity. Um, other uh, problems here, the, uh, of the, the opening moment of the play has Diaghilev in a delirium and the other characters talking around him and I and I immediately thought of the beginning of Amadeus and I thought gee this is kind of uncomfortably close to that um, but then it became uh, very very talky and very expositiony and as I said clunky with all these historical nuggets being thrown in uh, the only uh, moments when it seemed somewhat dramatic to me is when Diaghilev is sort of seducing, uh, if that's the right word, Nijinsky. Uh, there did seem to be something going on there acting-wise. And then later on, he uh, Leonid Messine shows up at, at, at a point in, in his life when he's only 18 years old, and he kind of offers himself to Diaghilev. And there, there, that again, there was that very sexually charged um, first meeting kind of thing. So those, those were interesting. But um, I think that this, believe it or not, was quite a boring play, uh, despite the subject matter and despite the richness of the car of the the lives of the actual people, which uh, there is a, I'm not sure if I mentioned there's an actual timeline in the playbill. Uh, so you can read all about the story from Diaghilev's birth in 1872 to, uh, well, the 
really the the dissolution of the ballet russe and and beyond that so i can't cannot recommend the play although i think you you might have thought you would really want to see it because of the names involved uh but i thought it was a tremendous disappointment hmm. so uh does this are we ready to talk about a larger question about was this a good idea for john doyle to take over classic stage company uh, well, it's too uh, soon to. We have to give him some more time to uh, develop here. Well, I don't know. I, I he did uh, Pacific Overtures, didn't he? Yeah. Yes, he did. I, I, I thought that was you know quite a good job overall. I, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily judge just by this. I would think it's more a question of uh, that if Terence McNally's name was not on this play, it might not have been produced. Uh, so that we could, we could get into that whole conversation, but I don't know if we want to, you know, if we have time for that. Yeah. Sure. All right. So that is down at uh, Classic Stage Company. It is playing through February 25th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you also got to the Regeneration Theater production of As Is at the Workshop Theater on 36th Street. So tell us about As Is. Yes, this is a revival of one of the first AIDS plays. It originally opened off-Broadway in 1985. and then moved to Broadway shortly thereafter, uh, as is by William M. Hoffman. Uh, it opened, if I recall, immediately before or very soon before uh, Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart appeared. And uh, this was sort of uh, uh, set a few years into the AIDS crisis, and I guess it took uh, – writers uh, and other artists a, a, a little while to to uh, write any kind of a response to it uh, to that incredible tragedy it's just anyone who lived through it um, will will tell you what a horrendous horrifying confusing time it was so I um, had not seen as is till since it opened in 1985 and that's a really long time ago um, it turns out there is a TV version I had forgotten about that uh, you can probably find it I didn't get a chance to look you can probably find it on YouTube or um, maybe on DVD somewhere uh, and I would I would certainly recommend looking it up um this uh is one of those examples uh this regeneration theater production where uh it was such a pleasant surprise you go to uh, a very small production by a a company that you've not necessarily heard of before that features a bunch of people whom you've never seen on stage and um none of the names involved were familiar and it was extremely well done there's some some really beautiful acting uh in this show i just want to name the whole cast the hospice worker was jenny vath rich was brian alford saul robert masonette chet daniel cologne lily ori krebs uh business partner sarah minisquero uh brother is colin chapin pat Rick Calvo and Barney Mario Claudio, uh, directed by Marcus Gualberto. And uh, this is, I guess, a smaller scale story than um, The Normal Heart and certainly than Angels in America about 
uh, a relatively small group of people in New York City and how they're affected by the AIDS crisis. I think originally um, this and the other AIDS plays that appeared at that time, and also the film Longtime Companion, there might have been some uh, criticism or comment that it, it was that all of them, just to a large extent, were about a very s- small group of relatively well-off white people. Um, in this case, for this Regeneration Theater production, I'm happy to say that uh, alternative casting was a brilliant success. Uh, for example, the role of Saul, originally played by Jonathan Hadari, um, I, I would seem to indicate that he was originally supposed to be a, a New York Jew. And there is actually one line towards the very end in which he he makes that point. But, uh, but until that line, he really doesn't say anything that indicates that. And Robert Masonette, um, who appears to be uh, Latino, uh, was so wonderfully brilliant and successful and credible in the role. He and Brian Alfred, who played Rich, um, they uh, the, the situation at this top of the play is that um, Rich and Saul are former lovers, but they're, they're still on friendly terms. And then, then it turns out that Rich uh, acquires AIDS and Saul sticks around to, um, to care for him and, and help him through what at the time was a death sentence. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, heartrending to relive those times in plays and films and and uh to reread about the facts of it. it 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 really was just so heartbreaking but all of these actors um it, it's uh uh it, it i've made this point before i think the pool of acting talent in this city is is very very deep and Sometimes you can go to a, a very, very modest off-off-Broadway production like this, uh, very, very brilliantly directed by Marcus Gualberto, and find just really excellent, excellent acting, even from people who – let's see. There's only one person here who has a little asterisk. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Two people have little asterisks next to their name indicating equity. But – Everyone here deserves to be on stage anytime they want. I just thought it was a wonderful play, and I highly recommend it. It's only uh, February 1st through the 11th at the Workshop Theater space uh, at 312 West 36th Street. But I consider it extremely worth everyone's while, uh, and especially if whether or not you've seen this play, but especially if you haven't seen it. Um, William M. Hoffman did, a, who, by the way, died only last year. Uh, himself, he really wrote something wonderful, and it's very, very different from the other um, early AIDS plays and movies that I mentioned. But just beautiful and heartbreaking. So you mentioned uh, the depth of the talent in Manhattan and mm. in the New York City area. You also got a chance to get over to Fifty Four Below to see a bunch of up-and-comers at Camp Broadway Presents before Broadway with Adam Cantor. So tell us about that. Yeah, Susan Lee, uh, uh, who runs Camp Broadway, had this idea to present a program called Before Broadway at uh, Fine Science 54 Below. And this is another case where um, uh, very young 
people, performers starting out, just get uh, the superb chance, very exciting chance to perform in, in one of the top venues in New York City. Um, and Adam Cantor, uh, who is uh, currently in the band's visit and has several other Broadway and off-Broadway credits, was the host. He did a wonderful job. And it featured 12 uh, or more young people in performing um, – uh, let's see. There might have been maybe – no, actually, I don't know if there was even one solo. It was mostly duets and trios and ensemble numbers from a wide variety of musicals such as Something Rotten, Aida, Big Fish, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, we had a, a number from Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. Uh, who knows when I'll hear that again. Um, Spring Awakening, <laughs> uh, Spring Awakening, Next to Normal, uh, The Lippa Wild Party, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the most traditional piece of music on the program was A Lovely Night from Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Uh, and then we had a number from 13, uh, a number from Avenue Q, and uh, As We Stumble Along from the Drowsy Chaperone was the, was the finale, which I thought was very witty. But uh, congratulations to uh, Susan Lee for uh, uh, and her colleagues, um, music supervisor David Dabon, uh, script writers Tim Drucker and Randy Blair, music director Nissa Kali. Uh, they really put together a wonderful showcase for these young people. And it, it was obvious that it was not thrown together because since it was uh, uh, duets and ensemble numbers and, and things of that sort, it obviously re required a, a fair amount of rehearsal in terms of blocking and, and things of that sort. So they did put the effort into it, and it showed very much. I, uh, um, I guess I'm reluctant to single out uh, anyone, but I, I, there is one young woman I really need to mention. Her name is Anna Meyer from Portland, Oregon. Uh, she will be a 2019 graduate of Mount Hood Community College there, and she just had uh, displayed a very, very beautiful voice that I think may um, – make her a star someday. I hope that's the case. All right. So that's uh, great. You got a chance to get over to 54 Below and see these young and up-and-comers, up and we'll have to keep them on our radar screen to see mm. what they do next. Matt, you got a chance to see the National Theater Live's, um, uh, what do they call it, a screencast? Yeah, screening. Screening yeah, sure. of Follies. So uh, tell us about this uh, this Follies. Yeah, it was originally uh, streamed or whatever, live streamed around the world back in November um, from a live production at the National Theater. And I didn't see it back then. I don't remember why I wanted to. But then a, a local theater here in Orlando called the Enzian Theater um, showed it yesterday morning. And I went out at 11 o'clock and watched it. And this was really my first time seeing a production of any kind of Follies. I've seen, obviously, I know the cast album and I've seen that concert DVD uh, thing they did a while ago. Um, 
which doesn't show you the whole concert. So uh, there were still some gaps missing. Um, so I don't have necessarily the depth of experience with Follies that probably the three of you do. But I really uh, found it quite fascinating. It was it was very beautifully directed for me uh, by Dominic Cook. And the designer is Vicki Mortimer. The set is very interesting. It, it looks like a crumbling theater, but has a turntable and things rotate, kind of hiding some of the action from the others. And it, at all times, whenever one of the older quote unquote present day follies performers is singing or something. Oftentimes you see their younger version up kind of in a crumbling, a part of the facade watching. It's very, it was very moving uh, to me to see that the cast, um, not necessarily to me, uh, hugely known names other than Imelda Staunton uh, as Sally, but uh, Ben Stone was played by Philip Quast. Uh, Buddy was Peter Forbes. Um, Tracy Bennett, uh, of course, that's a name that Broadway folks remember. She played Carlotta. Um, Phyllis was Janie D, who was fantastic. Young Ben, Adam Reese, Charles, uh, young buddy, Freddie Haig. Um, young Phyllis is ZZ Strallen, whose sister, um, Scarlett, has done a number of things over here in, in the U.S. Um, and Alex Young played young Sally. So I really enjoyed it, mostly because it was the first time I've ever seen a production of of follies, whether it was on stage or screen and at least in its full form and, and having grown up knowing so many of these songs that have become standards, uh, you know, over the past few decades, it was really interesting to see it produced because when you hear the songs and you kind of know the general arc of the show, you fill in the gaps on your own and you start to try to make connections and understand things. <laughs> but in a show like this, that as Michael's laughing, it, that's not easy to do with this show. So to kind of see really the the complete mental and emotional um, complexity of this show brings so much more nuance um, uh, to these songs that we know so well. And and I think one to the credit of of of, of Goldman and, and Sondheim, the we often talk about how Sondheim songs are are integrated and they're hard to pull out. That's a little different with this show, I think, because they are a lot of them are supposed to be songs that were performed 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago um, in terms of the course of the show. But they all bring on so much more relevance and and in depth when you see them in the full context of the show. So uh, I'm sure you guys have all seen numbers of productions of Follies. And Michael, I know you saw this cinema cast, so I don't know how it compares to the big 2011 revival with all those you know, great names in that, but I really enjoyed it and just appreciate, appreciated the chance that and uh, the national theater and NT live is, is streaming these things that otherwise a lot of people won't get to see. I, and, you know, follies isn't a thing that gets done in a lot of community theaters or a lot of regional theaters outside of New York. So I appreciated the opportunity to finally get to see it. And it's been announced that the national is bringing it back in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting a lot of questions from a lot of people as to whether this, uh, ver this video version might someday be available commercially. Uh, I haven't heard that it will be, but uh, it seems like sometimes it's easier to, to work that out. Um, well, I don't know when, when, when it's not, uh, American? I, I don't know. It, it really yeah. depends all, all on how the contracts obviously are worded. And, and I, uh, you know, if they if they try to uh, accommodate that when they were planning it and, and having the contracts written and signed. But um, I, it would be nice to have a, a fully staged uh, video yeah. of Follies available. 
Yeah, and they're in addition to it coming back uh, to London, they are doing a cast album with this cast. So, um, you know, I, it, it was interesting because I, you know, I, I think Amelda Staunton, she, I, you know, I've never seen the Harry Potter movies, so I only know her by reputation as a stage actress, really. Um, and she's a good singer. I, you know, I felt like some of the voices in here weren't. Um, the perfect fits, but the, you know, they were, they were still good. And the acting quality, um, both in the book scenes and in the songs kind of raised that to make it a little bit more impactful, but you know, the voices aren't the best. I, I imagine, you know, hearing Bernadette Peters sing Sally would have been better than Imelda, but, um, still a, a wonderful thing. If it is still showing in some theaters around the country, you know, I, I would recommend it. It's a good two and a half hours, um, again, no interval um, to uh, to kind of sit and watch a show. So it's, uh, you know, definitely recommended. And people over in London when it comes back a year from now or year and a half or whenever is definitely wouldn't be a bad thing to catch if you can. So uh, I, I forget, Matt, did we talk during a podcast or maybe after a podcast about uh, Broadway HD uh, I thought it would be a good idea for Broadway HD to hook up in a partnership with 54 Below. It seems like Broadway HD should hook up with a partnership with uh, the NT Live thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they have a lot of British content on Broadway HD, uh, not necessarily NT Live stuff, but it seems like such a good partnership because as far as I know, kind of like Michael alluded to, these things that NT Live, and they do – half dozen a year or so um they don't end up streaming anywhere maybe they do in in the uk but i'm not aware of it and um getting the chance to kind of see some of those things across the pond would be great they do have a lot of british stuff that was already produced and some recent stuff they did the railway children recently they did wind in the willows from um from london recently so you know they they actually have the imelda staunton uh, gypsy as well so there's definitely a lot of of options for them uh, to be able to to get into some of that British stuff because it is, as Michael alluded to, it might be easier contract-wise to get some of that stuff done than if they had to deal with all of the unions and contracts and producers and stuff here in the U.S. Well, actually, and let me ask you guys just briefly, do you think that eventually it will be worked out so that we do see more of these types of things for Broadway shows? I uh, mentioned that because it's come up recently with Bette Midler, Hello, Dolly. Uh, people have suggested that that would be have been the perfect type of thing to uh, to make a high quality HD video of. And then even if they wanted to save it until uh, the show closes and, and then make it available there, I, I, I know I always hear that it's the, 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 these very um, elaborate contract issues and, uh, you know, because of the unions involved and et cetera, et cetera. But wouldn't you think that um, – People, it would behoove people, producers, and everyone else involved to kind of figure that out and come to some kind of maybe they could like hammer out some general agreement that everyone could follow. Um, you know, there have been a few uh, cases, uh, and it, I thought it was going to. Uh, I thought maybe that the snowball uh, had started to roll. Uh, I'm thinking of the that really excellent live. Uh, Tele telecast of rent uh, of the stage production, and that's available commercially. But there haven't been too many others, and I'm I just wondering what your thoughts are on that. 
Yeah, I mean, there's been they did Memphis at, at one point mm-hmm. um, a, a number of years ago, and they've done some of these things with Broadway HD that have teamed up with Fathoms or with Fathom Events. Um, they did the, the she, Lo- she Loves Me. I believe they did Falsettos. Um, you know, there's been some here or there. So there is a pathway to making something like that happen. Um, but, you know, you mentioned, Michael, uh, about potentially Hello, Dolly with that. And it, it you're right. It makes perfect sense to have this huge star that did whatever nine months she did um, with the show. There's still so many people who would love to see her in this classic musical. And but it, it made me laugh because I can't imagine Scott Rudin doing that for some reason, even though he does so much we're going to talk about him and we talk about you know the academy awards i mean he does so much on both stage and screen mm-hmm. he won't even let people tweet about being in the show so it just you know i, I think it is a, a bit of how much the producers want to risk i think like you said after the show closes especially if it's a limited run that makes it a little bit more easier they you know we know that they famously filmed the entire original uh, cast of hamilton and they used a lot of that in the documentary on pbs mm. but lynn has said that will eventually come out just not anytime soon, which makes perfect sense. They've got like 27 different companies going up around the world in the next year or so. So, I mean, I don't see the downside. And maybe that's because I'm somebody who has never lived in the New York City tri-state area. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm a little selfish and want to see these. But we know it can be done. Broadway HD and Fathom and and all those other things. Like you mentioned, the live, uh, the live filming of Rent and Memphis. They've proven it can be done. Is it financially viable? That I don't know. But there's got to be somebody out there smart enough to make something like that work because we know there are a ton of musical theater people that aren't able to see Broadway shows on a regular basis. And just to end it, I I was making also the specific point that um, rent is available for purchase yes. on, on DVD and I think maybe even Blu-ray. But the others, uh, even the ones that get to PBS, PBS or whatever, like, for example, She Loves Me, uh, as far as I can remember, you know, once they're on, they're on. And then after that, it's up to you if you want to see if you can find it on YouTube or or if you want to record it, obviously, when, when it's on initially. But to buy a commercial video of it is just not an option. So I, I, it would be, you know, I mean, I think if they do um, try to figure this out and have more of them that uh, including that language in the contracts uh, for, in order to make them be uh, purchasable commercially would be very important. Agreed. Yeah. I, isn't she left me still on Broadway HD or did they pull it? Yeah. No, it's on. That's still on there. Um, uh, um, Holiday Inn is still on there. Um, Indecent, which was on PBS recently, Falsettos, those kind of things are still on there. But uh, you know, to Michael's point, those are those aren't those physical DVD things. Yeah. Those are streaming services that eventually, kind of like you alluded to, could actually be pulled when a contract runs out. When you know, like the DVD for Rent, which I have on my shelf. Um, that's never going away unless I break it or lose it. So um, there is a difference with the, between these streaming services and actually having a hard physical copy of it. But that is good to know. I actually didn't know that, that they're, that they're still available yeah. for, uh, for viewing through Broadway HD. Right. And I think, the, I think the Newsies one you can actually purchase digitally, too. Uh, oh. Don't quote me on that. But I think the Newsies that they did in theaters last year um, is available like on iTunes or something. Mm-hmm. Have they done any studies about how many people 
download or stream or purchase the DVDs of these performances versus how many people buy tickets. And I mean, I would understand that the producers would be concerned about losing ticket sales if people could say, well, I'll just wait until it comes out on video. But I, mean, well, I would argue that uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be hurting ticket sales to have these uh, available. Right. I think the best example of that would be the film version of Chicago um, and, and Phantom of the Opera, too, to be honest with you, even oh, yeah. though the film version of Chicago was far more successful uh, than the film version of Phantom. Both of those shows, actually, you could see a direct result, whether it was causation or correlation. I mean, it was a direct result that tickets increased for the Broadway productions after those movies came out. The The problem is, in my opinion, is that there's just not that many. You know, it's it's a small sample size to be able to say that this video or this streaming or this movie adaptation impacts a show that is actually currently still playing. A lot of times those things don't happen, um, you know, whether it's a limited run like the She Loves Me or Falsettos or movies that come or the, even if there's something, you know, a, a movie comes out of something that's very rarely still running on Broadway. So those rare occasions where Memphis was still running or Chicago or Phantom um, or apparently Wicked next year, um, there's just not a lot of data to go on to say, yes, this definitely helps or this definitely hurts or here's the variables that kind of lean it one way or the other. But, you know, I, there's a lot of smart people producing Broadway shows. So someone's got to be able to figure this out. It just seems like such sure. an untapped market to me. Exactly. And one of my favorite uh, urban legends, I have no idea if this really happened, but it's one of those, t it should be true if it's not, stories that uh, somebody was complaining outside of the uh, theater of Chicago. What do you mean Catherine Zeta-Jones isn't in it today? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, let me throw a few things in here to discuss. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you guys um, know that Disney, when they release uh, DVDs, they release them for a limited amount of time, and then they pull them off the retail shelves. Put, right. put them back mm -hmm. in the vault. Put them As back in the vault, and you can't get them, uh, making that making them scarce. And and Disney files uh, like my wife, uh, <laughs> you know, immediately buy these things right away and buy lots of copies of them to have them for presents and things like that because they're scarce. Since so that's interesting, also that Disney is starting to create their own streaming services that I think we'll see in the next five years. So I wonder how that will change, given that Disney has uh, a tremendous amount of Broadway content uh, that they can, they can, you know, at, seemingly, uh, I'm guessing that Disney owns all the copyrights to their Broadway content, but they may still have to deal with some of the writers in some way. I'm not sure their contracts... But one of the long-term uh, arguments about this is the rock group, the Grateful Dead. Uh, Grateful Dead encourages, encouraged when they were touring their fans to make bootlegs and trade them. And that didn't harm ticket sales at all. Uh, right. and, and I'd imagine if the Grateful Dead were in their prime today, they would you know, do streaming concerts and everything at the same time. Because people, it was the live experience. And if mm. you couldn't get to the live experience, you would watch the bootlegs or watch the, you know, what would be today the streaming service or something like that. But people would not forego buying a Grateful Dead ticket if they could. Yeah, you know, I was about to say exactly the same thing. Uh, I'm sure there are 
some exceptions, but it seems to me for the most part that anyone who would want to uh, go to the trouble to get, to get either a, or a, either an official commercial uh, copy or or a bootleg of a show uh, or whatever, if, if they care that much about it, they will also buy a ticket to see it live if they if they are at all able to uh, and you know if, if they're in the same city or if they have the money so I, I i could be wrong but i imagine there are very few people who do not go to pay uh, who don't do not pay to go see a show because they've already seen it on a video and it's not like it's not like bootlegs don't exist in theater either. I mean, I'm not going to call out any names, but there are some people that I know pretty well that have, I don't know, terabytes full of of, <laughs> yeah. of, of, yeah. of bootlegs. And that doesn't decrease their interest in going to see and seeing a show, even if they've already uh, you know, seeing the bootleg or and sometimes they see the show and then they get the bootleg and then it makes them want to go see it again because they notice things that they didn't notice originally. So I, I'm with you, Michael and, and James, about the bootleg thing and, and the chance to see it over and over again. I, I don't I just don't think it hurts people's interest in buying tickets. But I also could argue that the rising cost of tickets makes it prohibitive for people to actually attend live theater, whereas spending $20 or $10 to access streaming is a lot more affordable, and it opens it up to a wider audience. There's that story about uh, when Cinderella aired live in 1957 with Julie Andrews, a new Rodgers and Hammerstein musical uh, that you can watch in your living room. And they said more people tuned into that if it had been running for the number of people who tuned into that uh, live broadcast, and this was long before VCRs or anything that would let people record it and keep it, uh, the show would have run for 10 years for the number of people that tuned wow. in yeah. to watch it in their living rooms. So I mean, to make the shows accessible to the masses when you, know, you can't just drop $150 for a family of four to try to go see a show, yeah. you're talking you know, five, $600, and that's if you get a discount. So it also you know, makes sure that theater is not just for the elite who can afford to drop a massive amount of money on tickets. And there's something to be said for that as well, to making sure it stays. Getting back to what we were saying uh, earlier about theater being uh, – when it, theater, musical theater was pop culture, I wonder if the rising cost of tickets helped pull it away and make it to something for the elite. Well, last thing I want to say about this is that a couple of weeks ago we talked to it, Frances Ruffel, uh, and she mentioned just uh, in passing that during her uh, West End production of The Wild Party, uh, the Michael John Lacusa one, that they had filmed it and it hadn't been released yet. And think, uh, you know, to think that um, that possibly other shows in the West End have been filmed that are, haven't been released yet just uh, is more of an interest to me that uh, mm. there is a market here for us uh, not, you know, it, how reasonable is it that many American fans are going to be able to get on a plane and go to London to see a bunch of shows and come back. But these are things that in um, in the business world – you know, Americans viewing viewing on the West End is a is a small unrealized revenue that uh, is not really a potential revenue. So, any additional money that they would have to stream here would be uh, 
would be additional revenue for these productions that would have never have been uh, potential revenue over there. So it adds to the viability of these shows. So um, it, it, from a business standpoint, it makes sense to be able to show these things uh, around the world mm. uh, and sustain this art. All right. Um, for the morning, let's wrap it up with Matt. Let's talk a little bit about the 90th Academy Awards, which is coming oh. up on Sunday, March 4th. Uh, I know you'll be working 24-7 until <laughs> Monday, March 5th on yes. this. So <laughs> tell us, um, in your mind, what is that Broadway World article that you're writing on on midnight of uh, March 4th? Well, I, I, I think that the... If you're talking about best picture, that's going to come down to two films. Um, one is The Shape of Water from Guillermo del Toro. And the other, which does have a little bit more of a theater tinge to it, is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was written and directed by playwright Martin McDonough. Um, mm. Those two came in with a huge amount of buzz coming into this awards season before they were released. But to be quite honest, both of them kind of exemplify everything I felt about that November and December release push where shows or where films are put out so they can be eligible for the Academy Awards. They were good, but they weren't great. I, I'm in general somewhat underwhelmed by a lot of the, the movies that were uh, nominated for Best Picture. Now, uh, I, there's, there's uh, two of them that I haven't seen yet. Um but the other ones, I I liked all of them. I didn't dislike any of them, but none of them transcended into greatness. There isn't anything that I'm specifically was really blown away by that came out in that November and December period. There is one that was nominated that came out last February, almost a year ago, that I absolutely love. And that's what I'm going to be rooting for. But it has no chance to actually win. And that's Jordan Peele's Get Out. Um, yes. But, yeah, I love that movie. That's uh, that. That in a, a movie that's nominated for Best Original Screenplay, which came out over the summer, called The Big Sick. That was my favorite movie of the year. That was not nominated for Best Picture. But um, in the Best Picture contenders, there are a lot of things that have theater connections. Um, Call Me By Your Name, uh, which is <laughs> a funny story, uh, stars Army Hammer. And he announced that he was going to be making his Broadway debut in Straight White Men before the press reps could do it because he said it on the red carpet for this film. Uh -huh. um, so we know that because of... Uh, of this film. It also co-stars Timothy Chalamet, who was off Broadway uh, a year or two ago um, with uh, Sean Mike or uh, Robert Sean Leonard. They were in a show together, I believe. Uh, Michael Stahlbarg is in this, which is going to be a recurring theme because Michael Stahlbarg is in like three of the nine shows nominated uh, <laughs> for Best Picture. Uh, another one is the, uh, the Darkest Hour, which is a Winston Churchill film, stars Gary Oldman. Then you've got Dunkirk, which comes from Christopher Nolan, but it does star a number of theater people, including uh, Kenneth Branagh, Mark Rylance. Then you have um, uh, the, the Get Out, but then you have Lady Bird, which was written and directed by Greta Gerwig, who's this indie film darling. Um, and this was her writing and directing debut. Um, she's more known as an actress, but it has not only a ton of theater people in it, 
but theater itself plays a large role, at least in the first half of the film. The show stars Saoirse Ronan, who was off or who was on Broadway in The Crucible a year or so ago, and Laurie Metcalf, who is coming back to Broadway in Three Tall Women. It also starred Lucas Hedges, Timothy Chalamet again, Beanie Feldstein, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Lois Smith, and Tracy Letts um, are all in this this film. And the first half of the show, um, in a not <laughs> not uninteresting way, features a high school production of Mary Lee We Roll Along, which is just bizarre and goofy and and wonderful all in the same way. I, I really enjoyed Lady Bird. Um, again, not my favorite of the year, but it's it's a very small, different coming of age film that I think a lot of people, especially theater people, will enjoy as well. One of the films that I haven't seen is The Phantom Thread, which is from Paul Thomas Anderson, who actually has always been one of my favorite directors. It does star Daniel Day-Lewis, um, Arthur Miller's, the late Arthur Miller's son-in-law, of course, um, Leslie Manville and Vicky Creeps. Um, it also uh, has Harriet Harris in a fairly prominent role, apparently. Um, so that's always fun. So if that one's coming out here in the next week or so around where you are, definitely check that out. Then we have The Post, which is the new Steven Spielberg film that has to do with the Pentagon Papers and the Washington Post's decision um, to publish them. It has just a cavalcade of stars, Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Sarah Paulson, Bob Odenkirk, um, Les, uh, Tracy Letts again, uh, Bradley Whitford. And also, interestingly enough, although I don't know that they have a scene together, Tracy Letts and his wife, Carrie Coon, um, are both in it uh, as well. And again, Michael Stahlberg is in that one as well. Um, Michael Stahlberg, again, in The Shape of Water, as I mentioned. And I'm going to talk about this one again in a second. We're going to come back to that. And then the final one is the Martin McDonough film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which has um, Francis McDormand uh, as one of the stars. Um, uh, Lucas Hedges is in that one as well. So uh, Sam Rockwell is another Academy Award nominee who has some Broadway ties. So there's a lot of things for theater fans to be interested in when it comes to the best pictures. But the thing that kind of jumps out at me that's – the, the most compelling is that there are a lot of plagiarism charges against Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro's mm. The Shape of Water um, relating specifically to a play by Paul Zendel called Let Me Hear You Whisper. And we went through them on today on Broadway. But basically, The Shape of Water, which is one of the favorites for the best picture, has to do with a mute woman who is a janitor in a Cold War era American um, research lab, and apparently they've discovered this half man, half fish creature, and they're testing it. And she develops some sort of relationship with him non-verbally because she can't talk. Um, and then she kind of falls in love with him and tries to break him out and all of this stuff that apparently coincides pretty closely to to Zindel's play Let Me Hear You Whisper, which involves a female janitor in a Cold War American research facility who develops a nonverbal relationship with a dolphin, a little different, um, and decides to break him out. There's a lot of other things that go back and forth as to how they dis decide that they uh, to break him out and how they, they develop these relationships that are a lot of overlapping things. And this idea that this was plagiarized, borrowed the idea without crediting um, is something that's really interesting because there's another apparently there's like a Danish student film that was released in 2015 that has a very similar theme as <laughs> well. They've determined that there's really no way that Guillermo del Toro would have seen this student, you know, this short student film. But it's just interesting that these ideas we always talk about, there are no new ideas. It's just how they're presented. And it really makes you wonder if Guillermo del Toro, who is one of the most interesting directors in the world, really didn't hadn't heard of 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 the play let me hear you whisper 
how are they this close and this similar? So those are things that that I'm looking forward to. There's a lot of other little interesting things, including all of, a bunch of nominees. Aaron Sorkin's nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Molly's Game. Mark McDonough's uh, nominated for, for Screenplay. Robert and Kristen Anderson Lopez are nominated for their song Remember Me from the animated film Coco. Benj Pasek and Justin Paul are nominated for This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. And Keala Settle will be performing on the Academy Awards. Uh, the animated film Ferdinand um, is nominated for Best Animated Feature. And even though the screenwriters aren't technically nominees, um, Tim Fetterly was one of the screenwriters for that. So a film that he co-wrote is is an Academy Award nominee. So um, a lot of interesting angles to keep you interested in the Academy Awards, even if you haven't seen the films, there's a lot of Broadway connections to keep you rooting for certain things throughout the evening. Let Me Hear You Whisper uh, by Paul Zendel is available on YouTube. Yeah, they did. If you want to watch it. Yeah, they did. I'm sorry to interrupt. There was a, they did a, a British version back in the 60s, maybe, I think, um, that was on TV. It was on TV and it's still out there and it's available. I think you can buy it on eBay even. So the fact that, you know, as Guillermo del Toro is writing this film, it was actually plausible to be found. And that's the thing that blows my mind. And we talked about this on The Daily Show is The Shape of Water was released and distributed by Fox Searchlight Pictures with a major multi-million dollar production. How are people not trying to find these things? That just seems like such an obvious thing that you would have to do as part of a big budget release, especially like you said, it's it's out there. You can watch it. And yet nobody was able to figure out that, hey, this seems pretty similar to something that's already been done. Well, easier said than done, I guess. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Go on. No, I just, no, I, you're right. It's not easy. But when you're spending $19.5 million on a, on a <laughs> film, uh, throw somebody 20 bucks an hour to go try to figure out if there's any plagiarism charges out there. Yeah. The funny part about this is, I mean, as much as the four of us on this uh, discussion right now, we know what's coming in you know, the next two years or so to Broadway. Uh, I mean, and the lead time for Hollywood is, is, at, is usually at least that that amount of time. And we know what the stories are and things like that. And I'm sure that all of us talk to people every day who are encyclopedic, if not Peter Felicia, you know, about everything that's ever been done. There are whole websites about what's in the pipeline for Hollywood pictures. Somebody at some point must have said, this sounds... Very much like something else. If not, the people who wrote the original film, you know, would have said, uh, raised red flags somewhere on, uh, you know, they have, what's the, um, what's the, the brutal film review site? Ain't it cool news or. Uh, <laughs> ain't it, yeah. Ain't it cool is, uh, is, is one. I, I, I don't know that I would call it brutal, but yeah, it's out there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, those message boards are, uh, you know, make Broadway world look like kitty land. So <laughs> as, lo- as long as I don't have to moderate those ones, I'm fine with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's uh, wrap it up for the morning before we get on to trivia. Oh, you know what? I also wanted to mention later on today, there's going to be a little football game. And, um, and, and Leslie you know, Odom Jr. Leslie Odom Jr. is performing America the Beautiful before the Super Bowl. So get your little Broadway dose in there. Oh, before the Super Bowl. So is it going to be uh, broadcast? 
Oh, yeah, they'll do that. The Schuyler sisters did it a year or two ago. So oh, he's not right. the first Hamilton that's person right. uh, to sing America the Beautiful beforehand. I think Pink is singing the national anthem and Justin Timberlake is sing is doing the halftime show. So oh. um, Leslie will be much earlier. The game kicks off at six, I think. So it'll probably be in the 530 ish range if you want to tune in. Yeah, um, uh, I found out uh yesterday or uh day before or something like that that i something i didn't know that carol channing was the first celebrity to perform at a super bowl on super bowl four and we just talked about this week on today on broadway happy birthday to carol channing who just turned 97 years old on january 31st so uh here's our broadway trivia i mean we get we get uh, good ribbing from some listeners about how much we talk about sports on The Daily Show. So we thought we'd bring it on to the uh, Sunday show as well. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. All right. So before we get on to the trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in. Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you get finer podcasts, you can find us. Uh, also, I've been remiss in not asking people to go to uh, Apple Podcasts and leave us a good review. Don't leave us a bad review. <laughs> and so uh, it'll help people find us. I, people find that they uh, they complain on the reviews. You know, don't complain there. Complain to us. You know, there's many, many ways to get in touch with us. Our contact information is on the page at broadwayradio.com as well as links to things, some of the things we've talked about today. So, Michael, why don't you give an answer to last week's trivia? Yes, and uh, before I do, I'd like to, if it's okay, I would like to dedicate uh, this section of the show to Rick McKay. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, we didn't talk about who, that. Yes, uh, who was the wonderful filmmaker who's responsible for Broadway, The Golden Age, um, the acclaimed documentary uh, about his experiences, and uh, actually, no, actually about mostly about uh, things that happened in the New York theater prior to his arrival and that he missed and he wanted to try to recreate um, some of the excitement of that era. So it has um, amazing footage uh, and new interviews of talking heads of uh, some of the the greatest legends in Broadway history. If you have not seen uh, Broadway, the golden age, you should track it down. It's easily findable uh, on video. And there, Rick was planning two sequels. And I am told that hopefully um, they are, they were far enough along that others, someone else might uh, be able to finish them. And I, I certainly hope that happens. So, uh, farewell to Rick, and uh, I just saw him about four days before he died. It was a complete shock and uh, and a devastating loss to the Broadway community. Um, so, um, on to the question: What I asked was uh, one of the longest-running plays in Broadway history has a character who shares a name with a character in another Broadway play that had a far shorter run. Uh, the second play, the one with the shorter run, was later adapted as a long-running musical, but the name of the character in question was changed. So name the character and the shows. Um, I apologize uh, retroactively. I, I could have been a little 
more clear and said that I was looking for the first name of the character. Uh, but that didn't stop <laughs> uh, Richard Brennan from getting it. And, I, I, you know, he was the only one who got it, but he seemed to have uh, gotten it within about an hour or two of the podcast being published because that's when I got the email from him. The uh, long-running show, the long-running play is Tobacco Road that has a character named Jeter Lester. The short-running play is Green Grow the Lilacs, which has a character named Jeter Fry. And of course, Green Grow the Lilacs was adapted as Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma, which has a character named Judd Fry. So uh, the Jeter uh, was the was the key <laughs> uh, to the question. And um, thanks to Richard for getting it. So Peter's not with us this week, but he forwarded on a trivia question so that we wouldn't get out of step here. And uh, Peter asks, in a world famous musical, a group of men whistle a famous 19th century song, not a song from a musical, but a famous song from way back, from way back when but just so happens to be the exact title of a song that was written specifically for the show, but was sung by a group of women. <laughs> oh my goodness, Christian. What the hell is that? <laughs> what? <laughs> that was me. I think I got it. Okay. I, I have to draw a diagram to be able to follow, but I think I've got it. Not the answer, but I think I understand the question. What's the one name of both songs and the show? <laughs> okay, so I butchered that, and I realized that I butchered that. <laughs> But the question, I'll post the question in the trivia section on the Broadway Radio page uh, so that you can understand better what Peter is asking. And uh, Peter will be back next week to give us the answer. So on behalf of Michael Portantier, Jenna Tessa Fox, and Matt Tamanini, the Tams, as he was known in college. <laughs> I, yeah, okay. You must take Tam with you. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. no Tams, no Tams and Whitmark relation there. So uh, I did not, I did not make a bunch of money when they were sold this week. That's right, Tams Whitmark was sold this week. My name is James Reno for BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye. bye.